Hello, and welcome, everyone. Uh, it's Big E, and thanks for checking out the podcast for Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. Uh, this is a podcast for Virginia police, Virginia sheriffs, on the law, on constitutional law, search and seizure, use of force, interviews and interrogations, electronic evidence, um, sort of all the things that you need to know uh, or that you wish you knew as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia. This is a podcast for law enforcement officers who want to do it right, who uh, people like you who strive every day to be better and to find new ways to strengthen and serve their communities. And if you're listening to this, I bet that you're like a lot of people who've come to me and said, I wish there was a way that I could learn uh, and keep learning about the law. You know, the academy, academy, they teach you law in a couple of days, you know, and then you get four hours every two years of continuing legal education. And that's you know, I ain't going to cut it and you know it. And, and if you're listening to this, it's because you want to learn and get smarter and get better and do it right. And so welcome. Uh, hopefully we can do that together over the course of this podcast. Um, and, uh, and hopefully it'll be useful for you. Let me know if you have topics that you want me to hit. Um, I've got sort of a, a roadmap for the early episodes. So far, we've done a lot of talk about use of force. We've dove, you know, dove right into the deep end right now, and we've talked about federal law. We've talked a little bit about state law in in Virginia. Um, we're going to talk about uh, search and seizure. We're going to talk about. I'm going to take up uh, what happens after marijuana decriminalization. What's the law going to be like after decriminalization of marijuana? What can you do? What can't you do? What will be lawful? What isn't unlawful? What isn't lawful with respect to you know, when you smell marijuana, what are you supposed to do now under decriminalization? And we're going to talk about uh, the year in review of Supreme Court. And uh, and then from there on, you know, sort of keep you updated as to the law changes in Virginia. Um, what we've done in the first few episodes, so if you were, if you've been sticking around, and you've been listening to the episodes in order, you know, the first episode was federal law of use of force. And we talked about uh, 18 USC, I mean, excuse me, 42 USC, 1983, and uh, the idea of qualified immunity. Um, in the second episode, we talked about Virginia law, about use of force, and the common law remedies that are available to somebody if they're bringing or having a lawsuit against police for use of force. And then in the last episode, the third episode, we talked about the federal standard for uh, how do you evaluate when police use non-deadly force. You know, So we talked about Graham versus Connor. This week, what I want to do is talk about federal law when it comes to the use of deadly force. And you're going to see that the law is very different in a lot of ways uh, than it was for non-deadly force. And in some ways, it's very simple, although obviously it is a higher standard. And as we go through, you know, I am talking about federal law. We're going to talk about state law and the use of deadly force in the, in the state uh, again in the next episodes. Uh, so stick around for that. And I'm also going to talk about, when we do, we talk about the episode, I'm going to talk a lot about criminal liability as well. We have certainly seen uh, instances where law enforcement officers have been charged criminally for the use of deadly force. And so we're going to talk about, you know, what is the criminal law in Virginia about the use of deadly force uh, for law enforcement officers? You know, it wasn't until 1985 that the U.S. Supreme Court set out a clear standard, the modern standard for how to judge law enforcement use of deadly force. And they did so in the case of Tennessee versus Garner. Um, you know, I was watching an old, I was watching an old movie, um, there's a Hal Ashby movie called Harold and Maude. If you know Harold and Maude, it's a just classic movie, classic 70s movie. Cat um, Stevens is, does the soundtrack to it. Um, really, you know, great movie, you know, adolescent movie, if you get a lot of teen angst and so on. There's a scene in the movie where uh, the two titular uh, characters, Harold and Maude, 
Um, they get pulled over by the police because they've stolen a tree from downtown. And they steal a police officer's motorcycle. They get into his motorcycle and they drive off on his motorcycle. And the officer, as they're driving away, draws his gun and sh- and and pulls a trigger. He draw, you know, draws his gun and and tries to shoot at them. The gun doesn't go off, and it's sort of there's a lot of mysticism in the movie and so on. And so you're you know you're led to believe that there's something magical about Maud. And I remember looking at that movie. You know, when I was a kid, I saw it and didn't pay any mind. And I saw it again about a year or two ago, and I thought to myself. You know, this is two people who stole a police motorcycle. That's all that they've done. They're nonviolent. They don't have weapons. They steal the motorcycle, driving away, and the officer pulls out his gun, and he, you know, intends to shoot and at least kill one of them. In that movie, I think audiences at the time, and I remember growing up in the 80s, that, that didn't seem to be a shocking scene. It didn't surprise anybody. And, you know, talking to people who've done law enforcement, and you should talk to people who've done law enforcement in the 60s and 70s. I think it was very different. But I've talked to officers back in the 60s and 70s who said, oh, yeah, if somebody ran away from you in a traffic stop, it was not um, seen as a surprising thing to, you know, draw a weapon and, and shoot at them for, for fleeing from a traffic stop. Um, you know, that changed in the 1980s. And uh, Tennessee versus Garner was a case that certainly is the, at the forefront of that. Tennessee versus Garner is sometimes called the fleeing felon case. And I don't like that title because it is, it doesn't, it really, it sort of overly simplifies the ruling. But the ruling is pretty simple. And what happens in the case is an officer, essentially there's a a kid who commits a burglary and he flees from the burglary and he's trying to jump over a fence. The officer's chasing after him and he shoots the kid in the back. And uh, obviously that's the use of deadly force. The court has to judge in that case you know, was that use of deadly force proper under the Fourth Amendment? And as we talked about in the first episode, we judge in the federal system, uh, a civil liability is judged under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. In other words, is a, is a search or a seizure, a reasonable search or a seizure under the Fourth Amendment as applied under 42 U.S.C. 1983. So the court has to set up a, a test, a standard for this, and they come up with a standard. And the standard is, uh, deadly force is only lawful under the Fourth Amendment, under 42 U.S.C. 1983, under, for, for civil liability purposes, if there is probable cause to believe that the suspect poses an imminent threat of serious physical harm either to the officer or to someone else. So a couple things to notice about this. The first is that this case comes out before Graham versus Connor. So when Graham versus Connor comes out in 1989, uh, Graham versus Connor is a case that sets a standard really more at reasonable suspicion, right? Because you can conduct a, a, a temporary detention. You can use a, a level of force, a temporary detention force, um, which might just be verbal. It might just be presence, but it's certainly a level of force um, if you have reasonable suspicion, right? If, you, if the person's engaged in criminal activity and your force is judged according to the severity of the crime at issue, whether the person poses an immediate threat to you or someone else and whether the person's actively resisting or evading arrest by flight. But Tennessee versus Garner raises that standard up and says, we're only going to allow deadly force in cases of probable cause. And the threat, you know, Graham versus Connor, the second element of Graham versus Connor is whether the person poses an imminent uh, threat up to the safety of someone else. Here, the threat has to be of serious physical harm, right? So notice here that we're not talking about somebody simply being injured, but we're talking about serious physical harm either to the officer or somebody else. 
And so what I want to do today in this episode is talk about a couple of cases that apply the Tennessee versus Garner test, uh, this concept of deadly force, and then see if we can sort of uh, extrapolate there for then how courts will construe it. Um, there was a uh, there was a recent case, a case just this week from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that, um, that sort of, you know, reaffirmed that, you know, what this standard means and how it applies in, in, in um in real cases. So I want to talk about that case as well. But I want to talk about some examples from the US Supreme Court first before we do. The first case I want to talk about is a case called White versus Pauli. And this is an interesting case because it really examines, again, we talked about in Graham versus Connor that the court, and we talked about in the first episode, that the court really sets up an objective test, right? This is not a subjective test, it's an objective test. You always look at the facts that a reasonable officer would know going into the situation. And White versus Pauli uh, sets up a, you know, an example of how um, that standard is applied. In White versus Pauli, a couple of officers uh, respond to a road rage incident where one of the vehicles has fled. They get a description of the vehicle. They track the vehicle down to a residence. And in the middle of the night, they sneak up to the house and bang, up, bang on the door, demanding that the occupants of the house exit. There is a real dispute between the officers and the occupants of the house as to when and how and if the officers identified themselves. So um, as in many of these cases, we're dealing with the case before it goes to trial and in a sort of a summary judgment state. So we're, we're kind of trying, we're trying to, you know, weigh the facts. This is what one side says, this is what the other side fact says. The important thing is that everyone agrees that what happens next is the backup officer arrives and the backup officer arrives and he, when he pulls into the driveway of this house, has no idea what these two officers are doing up on the, uh, up on the stoop other than he's there for backup, he's there to help. And as he arrives, he can hear the occupants of the house, the people inside the house saying, we have guns. And as soon as he hears guns, he hides, he takes cover behind a wall and the occupants of the house open fire out of the house uh, and he returns fire and kills one of the occupants. Now, the family of the decedent, the person who uh, kill, is killed inside the house, sues the police. And so put aside for a second the issue between the officers at the door of the house and the people inside. I mean, that's obviously a factual dispute, right? If the officers didn't identify themselves properly, if they just sneak up to a house in the middle of the night, bang on the door, don't say who they are, I mean, they're probably getting a shot, right? That's that's not a surprise. And the people inside the house, some random person bangs on the door in the middle of the night and demands for me to exit. You know, that, yeah, that person might get shot at. Um, and if the people inside the house know that it's the police and the police are there and they identify themselves and they're in uniform, badge of authority and so on, and they're like, hey, this is the police, we need to talk to you, then people inside the house have no business shooting at them. So this is obviously a factual dispute. But the issue in the case that I want to talk about today is respect to the backup officer. Because the backup officer, here's what he knows. He, he's asked to provide backup, uh, to, to provide security and safety for the other two officers. He shows up. When he shows up, he sees two officers at the door of the house, and he hears people inside saying, we have guns, we have guns. And then all of a sudden, gunfire erupts, um, firing at the officers, so he returns fire and kills one person. The, um, the court says that the trial should go forward also against that third officer. And the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals also agrees and says, no, that, that officer's actions weren't reasonable, essentially reasoning that the backup officer had the responsibility to figure out before he opened fire, you know, what's going on here? Did the officers properly identify themselves? Did they not properly identify themselves? He has that individual responsibility. Um, and that if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't figured out who was responsible for the gunfire, 
then he had a responsibility to give a verbal warning uh, before opening fire because he was behind a wall. He was in a safe position. So if he was going to use deadly force um, and he wasn't doing it to protect himself because he wasn't under, you know, it was, he had a position of safety behind that wall, then before he opened fire, he had to uh, say, you know, police, if you don't stop shooting, I'm going to shoot you or something like that. So it, the case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. And interestingly, the U.S. Supreme Court reaches a unanimous verdict in this case, nine to zero. So you don't often see, I mean, you see a lot of unanimous verdicts in Supreme Court cases, but not a lot in use of force cases. Um, although there are a lot of unanimous cases in the last few years on use of force, a lot more than you might think. This one is unanimous, and the court unanimously dismisses the case against the backup officer, essentially saying that the backup officer didn't have a responsibility to second-guess the other officers, that that's not what we expect of uh, law enforcement officers to come in and say, well, you know, you're getting shot at, but a fellow officer, but, you know, I'm going to need to do my own independent investigation before I decide whether to uh, protect you or not. Instead, the court rules that a reasonable officer who arrives late to an ongoing police action in circumstances like this one may assume that his fellow officers have followed proper police procedures, such as officer identification, right? And so if you think about, for example, the, um, the famous L.A. bank robbery where these individuals had, you know, body armor and machine guns and were walking through the streets of L.A. firing off rounds, right? Officers are responding, dozens of officers are responding, and each one of them um, is trying to figure out what's going on and, you know, to get a safe position. But, you know, the court says, well, you've got two choices here. You could say every single officer who shows up on their own has to do their own independent investigation and figure out what's going on and verify whatever before, you know, and give verbal warnings and so on. And then and only then can they use deadly force. And meanwhile, these guys are walking around with machine guns and, you know, spraying the area and killing people. Um, or you can say, you know, these officers can expect that their fellow officers have done the right thing. And so, um, like I said, I don't like the name fleeing felon case. I don't like calling Tennessee versus Connor the fleeing felon case because it gives the impression that you can never use deadly force against somebody who is escaping or running away from the officer, right? And if you think about it, again, think about the LA uh, bank robbery situation with these guys in body armor shooting off rounds. Um, I think, and I'm not an expert on this video, but I remember, and, I'm, and I try not to watch it. I don't like to watch, I don't like to watch people getting killed on video. That's it's just upsetting, but um, but from my recollection of the video, I do think one of the one of the guys does get shot in the back of the head uh, by an officer, and you know it, it's not like that's unconstitutional. I mean, this is not a situation where the officer had to give the guy a fair chance to gun him down first before um, shooting the guy. Um, the the ruling is that you don't you can't just kill somebody because they're running away from you. You can use deadly force. If somebody has threatened uh, you with a weapon or there's probable cause to believe that the person is committing a crime involving the infliction or and threatened infliction of serious physical harm. In other words, again, the standard is pretty simple here. It is a simple standard of is there an imminent threat of serious physical harm to the officer or somebody else, right? And so you don't have to be looking the person in the eye and say, hey, look, buddy, draw, you know, or give him a chance to shoot first, or indeed necessarily give a verbal warning, right? That's not the constitutional rule. Um, if you have a situation where there's an imminent threat and the only way to resolve it is deadly force, then that's the rule. So how is this applied, right? So some, a couple of examples. We've talked about White versus Pauley. Mullenix versus Luna is an interesting case. It's a 2015 case from the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's an interesting case, um, you'll see, because again, the facts are curious. 
that there's a wanted suspect and he's fleeing from the police at about 110 miles an hour. He's fleeing down the highway. He calls 911. He says, I've got a gun. And if the police do not terminate their pursuit, I'm going to shoot at them. So the police decide they're going to use spike strips. They set up an officer behind a, um, uh, an overpass, and the officer has spike strips ready. And the idea is, again, if the, the suspect drives over the spike strips, um, you know, the officer will pull the spike strips on, onto the road, the suspect will drive over them, hopefully the vehicle will be disabled, and they'll be able to contain the situation. So while this is going on, Trooper Mullenix responds, and he asks his sergeant, he says, hey, look, sergeant, I think I can shoot this vehicle. I can shoot out the tires of this vehicle. The sergeant says, no, stand by, see if the spike strips work first. And Trooper Mullenix on his own makes the decision, I'm going to try to shoot out the tire anyway. He does not, he shoots at the vehicle. He does not shoot at the tires, but he does strike the suspect four times and kills the suspect. The car then hits the spike strips and rolls repeatedly. The family of the, of the deceased driver then uh, sues on the basis of unlawful use of force. Now, the district court does not dismiss the lawsuit. They said the lawsuit should go forward. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals refuses to dismiss the lawsuit and, uh, and allows it to go forward. And the Fifth Circuit, when they dismiss the case, excuse me, when they refuse to dismiss the case, say, the issue in this case, we agree, you know, the standard is, is there a probable cause of an imminent threat of serious physical harm to the officer or somebody else? And in the eyes of the Fifth Circuit, there was not a imminent and an immediate risk. In other words, there was nothing that said an officer right now, their life was in danger. And so there was no imminent need for the trooper to fire on the suspect's vehicle. But the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed. And I'm going to read you the quote from the Supreme Court. They wrote, in this case, Mullenix confronted a reportedly intoxicated fugitive set on avoiding capture through his high-speed vehicular flight who twice during his flight had threatened to shoot police officers and was moments away from encountering an officer at Cemetery Road. Because remember, the officer who's got to deploy the spike strips has got to stand in the median of the road with the spike strip, you know, cable in her hand. And she's got to look at the office, look at the suspect basically in the eye. And he's going to have an opportunity to drive right past her. And she's going to have to pull this spike strips into the road. So she's liable to get shot. That's so what the eyes of the court looks at. It and says, well, she's just, you know, he's just going to shoot her. I mean, if, he, if he, she's right there, she's standing on foot. She's in the middle of the median. So in the eyes of the court, the relevant inquiry is whether the existing precedent placed the conclusion that Mullenix acted unreasonably in these circumstances beyond debate, right? The issue is, is it clearly established? We talked about that in episode one. So if you don't know, if you didn't listen to, didn't listen to episode one yet and you're interested in this clearly established idea, go back and listen to episode one. Um, the court found that the spike strips carry their own dangers on their own. And again, officers are not legally required to select one dangerous alternative over another. In other words, they're not going to, as a court, go through and say, mm, you should have gone with spike strips instead of the shooting. I mean, spike strips easily can cause a crash, a deadly crash as well. And you saw from, if you ever know the Scott versus Harris case, again, a pit maneuver, um, it can be uh, quite deadly too, especially at 110 miles an hour, the suspect speed. But the idea here, the threat has to be imminent, it has to be direct. And so I'm going to talk about two cases uh, that are more recent cases from the Fourth Circuit that apply this and come out a little differently. Uh, one case is Wilson versus Prince George's County. And this is a case where an officer responded to a 911 call. And the 911 call reported that, the, uh, that Mr. Wilson had kicked in the door of his former girlfriend's residence. He'd attacked her and he caused her phone to fall into a drain. The suspect got a knife and he re-entered her apartment. At that point, she had fled. She fled out in the parking lot, and she was waiting for the police to arrive. He got a knife. He went into her apartment, 
and basically expressed that he was going to kill himself. So he's all by himself in the apartment. The officer shows up to the, the apartment. There's the guy holding the knife. The officer orders the guy to drop the knife, but the suspect refuses, Mr. Wilson refuses, and begins instead to walk towards the officer with the knife. But what happens next is important. Mr. Wilson uh, starts walking towards the officer with a knife and stabbing, and Mr. Wilson starts to stab himself in the chest and starts cutting at his own throat. And he gets to within either 10 or 20 feet of the officer. Once he gets to within 10 or 20 feet of the officer, the officer then uh, shoots him. And um, the, the argument then becomes, okay, well, was the use of deadly force proper? In other words, was there an imminent threat of serious physical harm to uh, the officer or somebody else? Now, you could look at this and say 21 feet, right? There's a 21-foot rule. And if you remember the 21-foot rule, the 21-foot rule you know, doesn't exactly say what I think a lot of people say it says, you know, what 21 foot rule says is that somebody can close on you with a knife or a handheld weapon um, and, uh, and, and, and attack you and cause you injury before you can get your firearm out of the holster in most instances um, if they are within 21 feet of you. So what ha what's different about Wilson is in this case, of course, the officer had already drawn his weapon. So that 21 foot rule Although the officer cites it, he says, you know, the guy was within 21 feet, so at that point my life was in danger. It's not exactly what the 21 foot rule says. The other issue, of course, is what was the indication that the officer, uh, that, that, that Mr. Wilson was going to try to stab the officer? And the officer hadn't sufficiently articulated that Mr. Wilson was a threat to him. It appeared, even though Mr. Wilson was closing on him, that Mr. Wilson, in the eyes of the court, was potentially just a threat still to himself. Although, again, he's closing the distance with Mr. with the officer, and it's not clear why. Um, ultimately, the court finds, in this case, that you know that it was it was unlawful of the Fourth Amendment to use force in this way. The defendant never pointed the knife in anyone's direction but himself. He didn't move suddenly. He didn't act in a threatening manner. And so you cannot use deadly force against somebody who poses no immediate threat to you and no threat to others, and therefore the use of force was unlawful. Now, we talked in the first episode about uh, the doctrine of qualified immunity and whether or not a rule is clearly established. Here, this is the kind of the first time the court has ex expressed this belief that, or this statement that um, somebody coming at you with a knife is not sufficient indication that the person is going to cause you imminent is, is the person is an imminent threat of um, causing you serious bodily harm and so in light of that because the court believes that they are really setting a new standard under use of force they decide they're not going to hold this particular officer liable because this is kind of a new formulation of the rule they're saying you know somebody coming at you with a knife isn't necessarily a threat of uh, serious physical harm to you they recognize they've never said that before. They recognize they kind of tighten up the standard here, but they, from now on, from the case, from from the from the Wilson case on, uh, which is in January of, of June of 2018, uh, in the Fourth Circuit, it is excessive force to shoot a suspect who is com is suspected of having committed a burglary and a battery, is standing 20 feet from the officer, holding a knife, inflicting harm on himself and stumbling, but not threatening others, not making sudden movements and is refusing to obey the officer's repeated commands to drop the knife at the time that he was shot. So, um, interesting ruling here. And here the court says, you know, we recognize that we're kind of setting a new rule, but 
there's a case that was just decided uh, this week that I want to talk about um, that comes out even more strongly uh, on the use of deadly force, and that is Jones versus Martinsburg. Jones versus Martinsburg is a June 9th case from the uh, from 2020 from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it's a case where the um, Mr. Jones is a homeless individual who is walking down the walking down the street. He's not walking on the sidewalk. He's walking in the street, and so an officer stops and says, "Hey, you know, what, what are you doing? You're walking to the street. Um, let me see some ID. Mr. Jones doesn't have any ID. He says, "All right, well, um, do you have any weapons on you? Anything I need to know about? Anything that could hurt me?" And Jones responds, "Well, what's a weapon?" And he's like, "Well, you know, knives, guns, drugs, bombs." And Jones says, "Well, I got something." And then at that point, the officer says, no, all right, then you got to put your hands on the vehicle. And he says, well, what did I do wrong? Jones says, what did I do wrong? And at this point, then the struggle begins. The officer wants to get the weapon off of Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones wants to know what he, got, what he did wrong. They go back and forth. The officer um, deploys a taser and um, the, uh, Mr. Jones runs away. He runs and he gets himself cornered in a stoop. Now, at this point, several officers have gathered and they uh, grab the Mr. Jones, they put him on the ground, they start struggling with him. One of the officers puts him in what the court describes as a chokehold. And during the fight, Mr. Jones draws this knife that he has and stabs one of the officers. So the officer who's been stabbed yells out, he's got a knife, I've been stabbed, you know, get out, get back, get back, get back. So everybody gets back, they draw their guns, because at this point an officer's been stabbed. And Mr. Jones is still on the ground, and they start yelling at him to drop the knife. At this point, then, uh, Jones does not drop the knife, and the officers open fire and kill Mr. Jones. They sue the law enforcement officers, and they sue on a couple different grounds, but I'm going to talk about the use of force in this particular instance. Um, the, the district court dismisses the case, and they, the district court says the officer's use of force was lawful. But the Fourth Circuit reverses and sends the case back for trial. And they, the court says that the officers were not entitled to qualified immunity, that at least on the facts as Jones alleges them, the use of force appeared to be unlawful. Um, as far as the, you know, Jones running away from the officers, the court wrote, what we see is a scared man who is confused about what he did wrong and an officer that does nothing to alleviate that man's fears. Regarding the shooting itself, the court wrote, viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to Jones, because at this point the case gets dismissed before lawsuit. So you, when it gets dismissed before it goes to trial, um, then the the evidence gets viewed in the light most favorable to the person who the case gets dismissed against. So Jones gets the evidence viewed in the most light most favorable to him because his case got dismissed before he went to before it actually went to trial. So in, in viewing the light most favorable to the to Jones, he wasn't even wielding the knife when the officers shot him. Um, when they find the knife, they do find the knife and recover it from him. It's it's tucked underneath his it's tucked into his sleeve, um, and he's got the knife sort of tucked away. Although obviously he did use it to stab the officer. The court, so a couple of things about this. Notice here echoes of Wilson versus Prince George's County, right? You have an individual who has a knife, an individual who's refusing to drop the knife, but an individual who uh, the officers are not able to say, this guy has a knife that he's going to stab me with right now, right? Um, he's he certainly tried to stab somebody. I mean, he did stab an officer just a few moments before. Um, and in Wilson, he had attacked his girlfriend a few moments before. But when the officers opened fire, the court looks at it and says, at that moment, was there an imminent threat? In other words, were the officers about to get stabbed? And the court says no in this case and sets the case back for trial. 
the court writes a paragraph at the very end of this. Um, and, you know, I would say courts don't usually do this, don't usually come out and make political comments talking about um, ongoing uh, cases in other places or the news, the media and so on. So, and, and the Fourth Circuit puts out, you know, I don't know, a dozen or so cases a day on some pretty controversial topics. Um, a lot of lawsuits against the government, a lot of lawsuits against the president, a lot of lawsuits against uh, immigration and customs enforcement, um, you know, homeland security and so on. It's unusual to see this kind of strong language from the Fourth Circuit, but I'm going to read it to you because this is what the judges, the three, three judges in the panel, uh, wrote in their public opinion. Wayne Jones was killed just over one year before Ferguson, Missouri, before the Ferguson, Missouri shooting of Michael Brown would once again draw national scrutiny to police shootings of black people in the United States. Seven years later, we are asked to decide whether it was clearly established that five officers could not shoot a man 22 times as he lay motionless on the ground. Although we recognize that our police officers are often asked to make split-second decisions, and notice, right, that's a quote from Graham versus Connor, so you might see that language um, that, that language comes right from Graham versus Connor uh, just last week. We expect them to do so with respect for the dignity and the worth of black lives. Before the ink dried on this opinion, the FBI opened an investigation into yet another death of a black man at the hands of police, this time George Floyd in Minneapolis. This has to stop. To award qualified immunity at the summary judgment stage in this case would signal absolute immunity for fear-based use of deadly force, which we cannot accept. So that's pretty strong language from the Fourth Circuit, and uh, the Fourth Circuit is generally considered to be a pretty conservative uh, circuit on police use of force, but you can see sort of a theme going through here uh, about the idea of the imminent use, uh, imminent, um, the, the need for the threat against the officers to be imminent. And it does go back, you know, this is an objective test. Were the, did the officer who was stabbed genuinely fear for his safety? I mean, if you put him on a polygraph and you said, you know, hey, you just got stabbed by this guy. Were you genuinely scared? Um, he probably would pass a polygraph that, yeah, I was genuinely scared. I, you know, this guy just stabbed me with a knife. Um, you know, if you in Wilson versus Prince George's County, again, was that guy legitimately scared of a guy closing the distance on him? You know, he's within 10 or 20 feet. Um, obviously, the officers, you know, without question, going to be experiencing tunnel vision. He's going to see Mr. Wilson as much closer just because of the way that the brain processes threats like that. A guy closing on you with a knife in his hand who's just attacked his girlfriend and, um, you know, is, I'm sure, saying pretty violent things. Um, you know, the officer probably perceived and felt a great deal of fear. Again, if you put on a polygraph, he probably would pass it for that he would, you know, feel that fear. But as we noticed, you know, we, going back all the way to the first episode, we talked about that shift from a subjective test to an objective test um, that has advantages and disadvantages for law enforcement officers. And one of the disadvantages for law enforcement officers is if you genuinely feel fear, that still doesn't really make any difference in the eyes of the court. Uh, they're going to look at it in a very objective clinical way. And indeed, uh, a situation in the eyes of the court can change very fast, even though your brain may not be able to process that change very fast. So your brain may be thinking, oh my God, that guy just stabbed me, or oh my God, this guy's about to stab me. The court's going to potentially look at the situation with a lot more um, nuance than maybe your brain is even capable of handling. So, you know, what does that mean for you in a you know tactical situation, you're going to have to make that decision for yourself and you know figure out how to adjust your training and adjust your tactics and so on. Um, but I think it's important that you understand how courts 
especially recently, have been viewing uh, deadly force in a civil liability perspective. So we're going to talk in future episodes about uh, criminal prosecutions of law enforcement officers. We're going to talk about state law and deadly force situations uh, for law enforcement officers in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And then we're going to talk, too, on um, some useful stuff for you going forward about criminal investigations and so on. Uh, so let me know what topics you might find uh, to be useful. Hopefully you guys like the podcast. If you do like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like your podca- the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh That's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.